All right. So today is a, a, a special episode of uh, Diet Soap. I've got Adrian Johnston uh, with us here today. He is the author of Zizek's Ontology, amongst other books, um, and uh, Chris Catrone, whose book, The Death of the Millennial Left, is coming out soon from Sublation. Um, I'm glad to have you both here. The idea behind this uh, podcast, the, the idea of inviting you both uh, on, was to uh, get a conversation going about the difference between uh, Freud and Lacan, and and to be more specific than that, uh, the difference between um, the Frankfurt School's uh, deployment of Freudian psychoanalysis and the later uh, Ljubljana uh, School of Psychoanalysis use of Lacan uh, as a way to intervene in, in politics, I, I think is how I would set that up. And so I, I'm trying to discover where the differences are, uh, uh, how Freud is useful for both projects, and, and just to clear away some of the confusion in my own mind about the differences that exist between let's say Adorno and Zizek. So um, to begin with, I'm just gonna describe what I think the situation is roughly. In, in an interview with Alfie Baum, um, who works with Sublation, he's the editor of uh, the Sublation magazine online. Um, um, Ladin Dolar described how he came to Lacan. And the story roughly was that Zizek and the Ljubljana School of Psychoanalysis split from the praxis school and the praxis school was uh you know critical of titoism and informed by the frankfurt school and by western marxism generally uh, they were humanists they advocated a return to the real marx that had been distorted by right-wing social democrats and stalinists alike they were inspired by lukash Bloch, marcuse Fromm, and others and um, and through Marcuse and Bloch and the Frankfurt School, they were informed by Freud. Uh, this is my basic understanding. Um, the Ljubljana School broke with Praxis, finding structuralism and Lacan to be a liberation from the restrictions they felt uh, in Tito's Yugoslavia and even within the dissident Praxis School. Structuralism was a movement set against Hegelianism at the beginning and by extension, I think, against Marx. And yet it was taken up uh, by this anti-humanist strain of Marxism as they reinterpreted Hegel without his historicism and with more of an emphasis on uh, the, the philosophical logic of the, of the dialectic. So I would just start with um, maybe something that you just said about the Ljubljana school, which is Hegel without historicism, right? And so I would say, you know, my my approach, you know, I had exposure to Freud before I studied the Frankfurt School, before before I really knew anything about the Frankfurt School. Um, but also I had a certain understanding of Marxism before I came to the Frankfurt School. And uh, what I've, you know, always found to be very important about the Frankfurt School is their historicization of Freud. Meaning that Freud is not adopted simply as transhistorically true, but rather true about subjectivity and psychology and capitalism. Um, and similarly, uh, the way they understood 
you know, Kant and Hegel and others, you know, other philosophers in the modern era as also being very much of their historical moment and in a fairly fine-grained way, meaning that uh, there was already a significant, considerable historical shift between Hegel's time and Marx's time. You know, one generation um, was enough to, you know, change, um, you know, the truth of Hegel's philosophy. And similarly, in their own time, the Frankfurt School observed what Marcuse called the obsolescence of Freud as a function of actual changes in capitalism, in society. Um, and so, you know, again, the idea was that uh, the split between the conscious and the unconscious mental process was an expression of the contradiction of capitalism. That the reason that no one had had a conception of this internally conflicted psychology before Freud is that perhaps it was not the case before Freud's time. Before, before the late 19th century, before capitalism, before industrial, cap, you know, capitalism in the Marxist sense of the contradiction of bourgeois social relations and industrial forces of production. So that the bourgeois subject had come into a self-contradiction in the industrial era in a way that had not been the case prior to that. And so we can't expect Kant and Hegel or Adam Smith to be Marxists, right? Um, and, but nonetheless, Marx and Freud occupy a similar historical moment, namely capitalism. But that there was a significant change in 20th century capitalism that um, seemingly invalidated Freud and paradoxically invalidated Freud at the moment when Freud had his greatest currency, namely mid 20th century. Right. So that's, and you know, the idea that ideology lags behind social reality and historical change, you know, there's a lag that, um, that the psychological effects of capitalism might have taken a couple of generations to really register. So that Freud, Freud is expressing something in his own time that might be already a little bit of a lag. That might be a kind of a, rather than an early 20th century moment, it might actually express a change that had taken place in the 19th century, namely the Industrial Revolution and capitalism. So that's the Frankfurt School perspective in a nutshell on Freud. Adrian, do, do you uh, agree with my characterization at the start? And then is the historical approach to Freud that you just heard Chris take up at odds with a Zizekian or Lacanian understanding of psychoanalysis? Well, I should begin by noting that, uh, Doug, you pointed out that what you were doing was, in a way, uh, paraphrasing Mladen Dallar's way of talking about the origins of the Ljubljana school in you know, the late 1960s and 1970s in, in the former Yugoslavia. And I, you know, I, you know, I would not be the one to dispute the accuracy of his account since he was one of the, you know, central actors in the very genesis of that of that movement. And in fact, when I was in Ljubljana last May, I had a number of long conversations with him about the, you know, the origins of the Ljubljana school and how he and Zizek met initially and what was involved in terms of, uh, you know, the, what they were doing in relation to the 
theoretical and political landscape at the time. So I can't uh, put myself forward, honestly, as speaking for them at uh, that level. And moreover, I would say that, um, you know, with Mladen talking about the origins of the Ljubljana school, that's, of course, one thing. But then what it has ended up morphing into over the intervening decades and, you know, what the state of play is in terms of, you know, discussions of various issues, uh, you know, within the Ljubljana school and, you know, amongst those of us who are, you know, one could say fellow travelers of them, um, you know, that's, it's a more, I think, complex landscape at this point. And, uh, you know, among other things, I certainly think everyone involved with this uh, orientation today can see some of the limits of classical, you know, mid 20th century French structuralism. Um, so yeah. those are a few caveats that I would like to present up front. Mm. Um, and I mean, at this point, I think that what would be best for me to do is to, to speak for myself. Although I would say that much of, you know, what much of what I have to say, I, I think is, is in line with, um, you know, certain of the positions staked out by Zizek, you know, Delar, Zapancic, et cetera. Um, and, you know, to begin with, you know, apropos the historicizing of Freud, um, you know, yes, that's, you know, the signature hallmark gesture of the Western Marxist engagement with psychoanalysis, particularly as per the first generation of the Frankfurt School. Um, and I, my initial response to it is, is that, you know, certainly I think that there are some aspects to Freud's edifice that Freud himself did not historicize, but should have. But on the other hand, I think that there are numerous aspects to Freud's framework, including what Freud would identify as really the load-bearing conceptual pillars of his metapsychological edifice, mm -hmm. um, which Freud, of course, would, you know, would stick to his guns and say, no, that, that, that at the level of, uh, you know, if we're going to talk about this as historical, it would be at the level of natural history or evolution. That, and, you know, what we're dealing with here are forces and factors that are very much a part of what we might loosely call human nature, or what the young Marx would have called Gattungswesen following Feuerbach, um, and, and that it is uh, a much harder to try and historicize those things away. I mean, you know, central analytic concepts like Trieb, drive in Freud's sense, or, you know, other aspects of his account of the fundaments of the working of the libidinal economy, independently of questions of whether he was uh, uncritically, uh, a, uh, you know, uh, you know, ahistor ahistorical about things like the bourgeois nuclear family, et cetera, you know, right. uh, that, yeah. And, and so I think it's just too sweeping to say either you have to have, you know, you have to stick to an original Freud who was, you know, anti-historical and just a kind of naive universalizer about everything that he was, you know, putting forward, which I don't think was the case with Freud originally himself anyhow, but, you know, or, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, you just have to historicize everything all the way down. And I think that, you, that the, not even someone like Marcuse, you know, really does that because he still relies on the notion that although the way in which these things are historically mediated and inflected can shift, I mean, he still tacitly banks on the idea of a certain transhistorical validity to a category like drive, a la Freud. Um, and so I don't even think that the, the Frankfurt School, uh, or at least, you know, the Marcusean classical formulation of Freudo-Marxism, a la 1955 Zero Civilization, um, I don't think that Marcuse could be, you know, a pan-historicizer who would just go all the way down, you know, and say, 
every you know every last bit of this is contingent upon uh, basically the you know the the capitalist mode of production and its corresponding social formations. Um, I, I don't think that Marcuse could even remain consistent with aspects of his own endeavor and go that far. Um, and then what's interesting too is if you go back to Marx. I mean, on my reading of Marx, I'm sorry, Marx was not. Um, you might you might risk calling this sort of position sort of uh, reductive pan historicism, right? Where it's like every Everything is historical all the way down, um, you know, with no exceptions whatsoever. We can never make any, you know, trans historical claims and so on. Um, that I think clearly is not even the case for Marx himself. And that Marx, you know, was well aware that a lot of what was involved in historical materialism as he was working it out, um, very much uh, presupposed and rested upon the foundations um, provided by a what we could loosely call a philosophical anthropology. And, you know, one of my senses is that Freud and Lacan at the level of their metapsychologies provide, you know, absolutely crucial ingredients for precisely the sort of philosophical anthropology that Marxist historical materialism, inclusive, of course, of its account of history, has to at least presuppose, if not posit, uh, you know, for its own theoretical consistency and coherence. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think that one can, it just, I, I just, you know, refuse to choose between, you know, historicism or ahistoricism, you know, it's a much more complicated picture, but I would say it's also much more complicated for the original figures themselves, or both Freud and Lacan, and attempting to position the two of them with regard to this kind of schematization of, of positions in this starker black and white fashion, um, I think will just lead to a mishandling of the two original sources in question here. Is there... A, a difference between, I mean, maybe we shouldn't talk about the Praxis School particularly, but between today's um, advocates of the Frankfurt School or uh, people who would look to the Frankfurt School uh, to understand the political significance of Freud and uh, the, the Lacanian left's understanding of Freud through Lacan, and it and is a difference somewhere in the vicinity of a different uh, conception of what's historical and what's uh, innate in human psychology? Is that a point of difference at all between the, the two approaches? I could Adrian. clarify what I mean yeah. by historical. Yeah. Um, which is okay. maybe going to complicate things a great deal. Um, no, <laughs> yeah. meaning I think that we have a kind of historicist notion of the historical that we have to sort of dispense with. Mm -hmm. Because it wouldn't be true to Hegel, it wouldn't be true to Marx, and it wouldn't be true to Frankfurt School. Namely, we're not talking about like points in time. We're not talking about, you know, this moment versus that moment. We're talking about a historical process. In other mm -hmm. words, capitalism has deep historical roots. Mm -hmm. And those historical roots extend to natural history. Of course they do. And that's why the Frankfurt School got into trouble with dialectic of enlightenment where they said maybe capitalism is inherent in organic life itself, the principle of eating and being eaten, right? I mean, they, they did do these things, you know, Adorno and Horkheimer. Um, and so, or even the way Marx talks about the origins of bourgeois society going back to classical antiquity, seeing, you know, bourgeois categories at work in Aristotle, you know, Castoriadis wrote about this. Um, and, you know, so I think that, if we understand it as a historical process rather than just discrete moments in time, because that's the kind of historicist notion, which, of course, Marxists like Lukács and Benjamin and the Frankfurt School 
are savagely critical of historicism. So we're not talking about historicism here. We're talking about how do we make sense of an unfolding and continuing historical process from within that process. In other words, you know, it's not just, you know, eternal or a point in time. That's not the difference that, that I think we have to grapple with. Historical specificity means something else. It means within a historical process that's been unfolding. Well, just in response to that, though, two things. I mean, one, even if we think of, of what we're talking about here as history as, as processual rather than punctual, um, I think that Doug's question still remains, which is that, all right, is one... Does one posit that there are invariant dimensions throughout whatever process or processes one is looking at that play a, you know, an enabling or condition of possibility style role with regard to those processes and that themselves do not just you know, rise and fall in the flow of the unfolding of whatever process in question? No. You know, so I think there's that issue. And you know, related to that, you know, in my view, there, one has to also distinguish between history or, you know, various senses of historicism from a certain notion of historicity in terms of historicity not being itself historical, but really, you know, at the level of what I was earlier referring to as philosophical anthropology, identifying the invariant features of, you know, the makeup of humanity and of human subjects such that they are historical creatures, right? And insofar as what, if you would say we are always, uh, no matter, you know, which, you know, instances of humanity or, or human subjects one is looking at, we are always historical. Well, then the question of what is that constancy that allows for that always when we talk about the always historical status of them? And I think at that level, at least as the kind of philosopher that I am, I think you have to shift to a level where you're talking about, um, you know, more of a transcendental analysis of the possibility conditions for being historical. And those themselves um, on pain of incoherence cannot be treated as just, you know, one more set of transitory, whether processual or punctual, historical factors among others. Enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-imposed immaturity. Immaturity is the inability to use one's own understanding without another's guidance. This immaturity is self-imposed if its cause lies not in lack of understanding but in indecision and lack of courage to use one's own mind without another's guidance. Dare to know, Sapira Auda, from the Latin. Have courage to use your own understanding is therefore the motto of the Enlightenment. You know, Chris, you mentioning Aristotle and, of course, Aristotle's famous discussion of what for him was a, a marginal outlying economic right. factor, right. namely, you know, merchants, greed, etc. Um, and, you know, talking about it as bourgeois. But in my view, that's uh, that sounds anachronistic. It's not that Aristotle is bourgeois. It's that what he was identifying as a fringe phenomenon you know, in the context of the Greek socioeconomic you know, framework um, was there, 
but long before there was anything bourgeois on the historical horizon. But then, of course, once you have capitalism, this feature that is already discerned by someone in the ancient Greek world circa 400 BC uh, goes from being an outlying aspect to becoming you know, the central engine, you know, propelling the mode of production that is capitalism along. Um, and so that to me is not that Aristotle was bourgeois. That just goes to the point of, you know, not everything that is crucial to capitalism here is part of a process that itself can all be subsumed under the general heading of capitalism or bourgeois, you know, et cetera. Um, and so that that is where I get kind of concerned because if you stretch the process out long enough, then you basically will commit a mistake that Marx himself would have would have pulled his hair out when confronted with, which would be like, uh, you know, you you know, you have to respect the you know the 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 distinctness of capitalism as it emerges for Marx in the early 16th century, and to you know elongate it so that you basically can call things stretching all the way back to say slave-based you know antiquity as you know also bourgeois. I think for Marx, no, that right. would be I a, a real worry. No, I wouldn't. So I wouldn't quite do that. But I was just pointing out, again, something maybe a little bit different. So um, namely that I think that this, the claim with Marx, you know, it's in various of his writings. I think it might be in the Grundrisse. He's making a claim about like, the deep roots of the commodity form at the level of like what people call the, um, I think it's the axial revolution, the emergence of abstract thinking. Right. Yeah. And Marx does make a claim about that. In other words, that there's something about abstraction and abstract thinking that is developed via the commodity form and therefore can trace its origins to deep historical civilization. Still a rather late development of civilization, relatively speaking, but still ancient from our perspective. So there's that. So just to clarify what I'm saying. Um, that you could find the roots of bourgeois society in ancient Athens, not in ancient Sparta, but in Athens, right? And that that has something to do with with trade and the commodity form and the status of labor being different in Athens than in other ancient cities of the Mediterranean. There's that. The other point that I'd make, just to identify, just to help our, our viewers, historicity. So historicity is Heidegger. And Heidegger is responding to Marxism and also to the crisis of historicism, meaning there is an early 20th century moment where it's clear that a late 19th century historicism, which Lukács, for example, calls a reified view of history, um, is pre presents a conundrum. And then, of course, Heidegger has to respond to Hegel has to respond to historicism as, as it emerges in the 19th century, and also has to respond to Marxism and the claims that Marxism makes about human nature. And, and Heidegger is trying to criticize Marxism for actually assuming a kind of Western metaphysics of labor, essentially, that reaches all the way back and that goes back to classical antiquity and can be found in you know, Plato and Aristotle and can be found to be something that the pre-Socratics are wrestling with. And what I want to say is that the 20th century, the reason that Heidegger is so influential for people like Lacan and, and people who come after Lacan is that it, 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 capitalism does raise these questions. How deep does this problem go? Is it a fundamental problem of Western metaphysics? You know, how do we, how do we understand this? 
And um, I would say that while I think that Heidegger in comparison to the Frankfurt School lacks historical specificity with regards to capitalism, I would also say that, you know, following the Frankfurt School, if there's something authentic about what Heidegger is trying to grapple with, with this category of historicity. So it's not, you know, again, but again, how do we understand how and why this problem arises when it does historically? You know, I, 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 I want to ask a clarifying question because I'm getting, I'm a little lost at this point, And I think the viewers would be a little lost. Like I, want to know what Heidegger thought or what, what generally people believed at the, in the temporality, how we experience temporality, ecstatic right, but, temporality, the fact that what, we're, what, not, we're not bound to a moment in time. Let, let me, let me articulate, part of human let me name. articulate the question. Right. So um, what was the conception of history or historicity that came out of the 19th century that presented a philosophical problem or a, a difficulty that Heidegger felt he had to overcome. What was it about that? And maybe Adrian, if do you, right, right, do you yeah. want? Well, I mean, I'm wondering whether it's it, this should be pursued just because, for me at least, this is a bit of a red herring. In that, yes, I take the term historicity and use it to distinguish, you know, that level of analysis from what would be involved in what we would consider to be more familiar senses of what it is right. to look at things from a historical vantage point. Um, but I should say, I mean, I am one of the most vehemently anti-Heideggerian people I think you could meet. I have no, I mean, despite this term, you know, being associated with Heidegger, I have no commitments to, and in fact, you know, grave reservations about um, Heideggerian phenomenology generally, his analytic of Dasein specifically, and that moreover for me, the, uh, you know, coming at this more from um, the Marxist side of things, you know, when we talk about, um, you know, historicity as in a sense, the, you know, transcendental conditions of possibility for historical phenomena, um, that, you know, I think that that is in part what not so much Heideggerian you know, uh, existential phenomenology and phenomenological ontology, that we shouldn't look at that for giving us that account. I mean, Heidegger, of course, you know, would diff beg to differ, but um, instead it's just uh, that a lot of the aspects of what were involved with dialectical materialism is first developed by Engels and then carried forward primarily by the non-Western currents of Marxism, mm -hmm. starting with the Soviets, etc. And that, of course, this was rubbished by the entire Western Marxist tradition, starting with the young Lukacs in 1919, you know, at the, in a footnote to, uh, you know, the opening chapter of History and Class Consciousness, uh, What is Orthodox Marxism, in which he lambasts the entire Engels project of providing these large, you know, these bigger picture, natural historical level material conditions of possibility for the sort of history that's at stake in historical materialism as focused specifically on human social history. Mm. Um, that that is more, uh, you know, what for me would be involved in, you know, cashing out historicity and mm -hmm. and an admittedly very anti-Heideggerian fashion for a good number of reasons. Um, but I, so that I should just say that, you know, for me, at least I have no investment in right, trying right. to defend Heidegger. And it doesn't have to do with the phenomenological experience of temporality. Um, it does for Heidegger when talking about historicity, but certainly not for myself. Okay, so let me just say something about just a clear, you know. Yeah, I know, I'm, I'm, I mean, I know I, our viewers I feel like, know something yeah. about this, and so I just want to sort of say something about historical materialism and dialectical materialism, mm. namely that 
um, that's itself a symptom that Marxism seems divided between historical materialism and dialectical materialism. I don't think that Marx or Engels themselves would have drawn the hard and fast line between those two things. And it would not appear to be a choice that you're either a dialectical materialist and therefore an Eastern Marxist or you're a historical materialist and therefore you're a Western Marxist. That wouldn't really make sense to Marxism before Stalinism, basically. Um, and so I think it's part of the dogmatization of Marxism and also part of the experience of Marxism and the crisis of Marxism and the division of Marxism that would itself have to be historicized, that this division between like, oh, well, dialectical materialism is about nature and historical materialism is about society. Now, you know, Lukács, I'm sympathetic to Lukács, but I also recognize that Lukács himself was working through his understanding of Marxism, especially as early as 1919. And the defense of history and class consciousness that he writes that wasn't published until much later, Tailism and the Dialectic, has a second part on the dialectics of nature in which yeah. he no longer, he no longer uh, is anti-Angles in this way. And it's under pressure of the people who are going to become the dialectical materialists in the Soviet Union. One of the things I'm noticing in this conversation is that certain names that when they come up are charged. When, right. um, when we start talking, like Marx is charged, Heidegger is charged, but for someone who isn't as aware of the history or may not remember or have ever fully understood the philosophical arguments, um, the fact that they're charged isn't clarifying. So like, for instance, with Heidegger, what, when he was approaching the problem of historicity, my question for you, Adrian, is, you know, as, as someone who has a, I'm coming to you as like an undergraduate philosophy right. guy, right? Uh, not, um, what was the philosophical problem left over in the 19th century that people felt needed to be addressed? And, and uh, did Heidegger address it in the wrong way? Or did what, and you know, was his answer you know, I can understand that it would have political consequences, which we would want to avoid. But was he actually taking up a real philosophical problem uh, or was he uh, bullshitting, you know, bullshitting, <laughs> mystifying? Um, <laughs> and, 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 and if he was taking up a, a real philosophical problem, did that problem remain after Heidegger for uh, people interested in psychoanalysis and people who were uh, interested in politics, people maybe in the praxis school, and for, us. In the, and, and for us today. Certainly, I think that, you know, in terms of what I consider to be valuable that lurks in the background of what Heidegger is doing and, and also what is motivating some of Heidegger's own complaints about, uh, for example, Marxism, um, is, of course, you know, Heidegger, along with Lukács, uh, the young Lukács, both ha uh, had deep roots uh, in neo-Kantianism. And, you know, I think that, you know, the, and, and here I must say the Heidegger who I like the most is the, if there is a term, the pre-turn Heidegger, the Heidegger of the uh, first few years of his, you know, really the takeoff of his of his philosophical career, the author of, you know, Being in Time, Basic Problems of Phenomenology, and Kant and the Problem of Metaphysics. So Heidegger, essentially 1927 to 1930. And that Heidegger, um, I think, is what's valuable there is, I think, what is ultimately what he comes to be, and after his turn, self-critical about, which mm -hmm. is that he remains still somewhat invested in a Kantian 
mm-hmm. tradition for which transcendental analysis is mm-hmm. a requisite component mm-hmm. of a fully worked out philosophical approach, especially when what we're talking about is ourselves as human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and that part I am sympathetic towards. And then to me, part of the issue is how do you interface you know, that kind of Kantian-inspired transcendental analysis with a, a, broadly speaking, a materialist framework of those aspects of Marxism, right? Um, and, And so that, to me, is where the, specifically the early Heidegger and some of what is involved with the early Heidegger's way of distinguishing between history and historicity is, uh, is of enormous value. Um, but, of course, you know, not only for Marxist reasons, but you might say for, uh, based on a combination of, of primarily Marxist and psychoanalytic considerations mm. inflected mm. by things such as, for example, French structuralism and its various permutations. Um, I am adamantly opposed to some of the basic commitments of anybody invested in phenomenology, including Heidegger, you know, in terms of you know, what we are supposed to pay attention to, where the center of gravity is supposed to be, the level of, of, of you know, credence given to, for instance, you know, experience as understood phenomenologically versus other dimensions that we might want to bring into play from a more materialist vantage point. Um, and that, of course, I also fully agree with Chris when he said, for all Heidegger's talk about history, he doesn't actually do much of it. There's very little, I mean, it's, it's so, well, first of all, I mean, he speaks in remarkably naive historical terms about phenomena like Dasman as, you know, really recognizable as a more, you know, a more localized historical phenomenon of the denizen of a modern industrial bureaucratized capitalist society. And he talks about this as though it's just an eternal human type in a way. Um, it's just one example among many. But then... Um, in addition, when Heidegger talks about history as in terms of like the epochs of the disclosure of being, I mean, he wants to, you can just read it off from basically the standard history of philosophy canon, where you right. go down the list, you know, Plato, then Aristotle, et cetera. And you just, and of course, with the idea that the pre-Socratics had this, you know, insight into fundamental ontology that was then covered over by the advent of Western metaphysics with Socrates and Plato, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then it's just this, this really remarkably story. Yeah and sweeping and yeah. so you know and that and, and and then on top of it of course the nazism which as we know right. in recent years both the 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 schwarze have the black notebooks as well as the correspondence with his brother indicates that he was a diehard committed you know fa- fascist anti-semite long after hitler's defeat even i mean oh. it's really appalling so that too of course just makes him you know you know toxic in addition to philosophically objectionable um but anyhow in a nutshell I would have to say about him and but it's hopefully a clear enough fashion in the transcendental sense an object is outside me when its existence does not depend even partly on my representations of it the empirical sense of outside me depends upon the distinction between outer and inner sense inner sense is the sensible intuition of my inner states which are themselves appearances time is the form of inner sense meaning that all the states we intuit in inner sense are temporally ordered Outer sense is the sensible intuition of objects that are not my inner states. Space is the form of outer sense. In the empirical sense, outer simply refers to objects of outer sense, objects in space. Transcendental idealism is the view that objects in space are outer in the empirical sense, but not in the transcendental sense. Things in themselves are transcendentally outer, but appearances are not. I know the truth. 
You could call it the end of the world. Mm-hmm. So in very basic terms, um, Kant and Hegel would not have divided a subjective account of history and an objective account of history. But by the late 19th century, it seems like there's an antinomy between subjective approach to history and objective approach to history. And that's the question. Can I ask you a question? What Would it yeah. be that the reason why Kant wouldn't divide the subjective account of history from the objective account of history be because Kant put the whole realm of the objective uh, outside of the categories of human understanding. So then any account of history would be no. subjective because he had this be... realm of the noumenal where, you know, he was, it was, he had a critique of the pure, of pure reason. He had, uh, uh, he wanted right. to, this to, is, this is a yeah. little bit, a little bit already little neo-Kantian, right? So the, unfortunately we tend to read Kant through neo-Kantian preoccupations mm-hmm. like a division of the epistemological and the ethical, you know, and this kind of thing. And I kind of feel like in Kant's own terms, this really doesn't make any sense. You know, it's simply the dialectical approach because Kant is dialectical. He's not mm-hmm. antinomical, he's dialectical. And, you know, what that means is that you can't understand the object without the subject and you can't understand the subject without the object, right? And it's just as simple as that. And that that doesn't preclude like scientific knowledge, right? In other words, like self-conscious truth, right? doesn't preclude that. And so again, we tend to sort of turn it into like an epistemological problem. And it really isn't just that. And that's where, you know, again, the sympathetic reading of Heidegger would be, but also I feel like, just to say something about the phenomenological, I feel like poor Husserl, poor Husserl, do you know, like, I feel like, you know, Husserl, who's like one of Heidegger's professors, you know, the crisis of the European sciences is like, a wonderful kind of registration of a problem, you know, in the early 20th century, Um, you know, so it's not like these problems are unknown, right? It's not like only Marxism sees a problem or something. Mm -hmm. These these problems are evident to everyone, if, if you will. And so then the question is how to address the problem. And, you know, Again, the problem with a kind of materialist historical approach and the kind of mode of production approach and this kind of thing, that that actually might presuppose too much. In other words, if we just think, okay, we're going to have like a social historical account. And this is where I'm sympathetic to the idea that we don't want to like be historicist or reduce things to their context. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, that's very kind of flat. You know, it's kind of like, well, no, what do we even mean by historical context, social context, what do we mean by society? You know, is society just a set of conventions that people have? No, right? Is history just a point in time? No, right? So again, those fundamental questions, what do we even mean by society, social context? What do we mean by history, historical context at all? And more, much more widely than Marxism, this problem is registering itself, you know, in like classical sociology, Durkheim and Weber, you know, these, these questions are being taken up. And so there is, there is like an evident crisis of the meaning of scientific knowledge, for example, you know, and, and also obviously philosophy has been in crisis, you know, I guess I'll just say from a Marxist perspective, 
since the young Hegelians. Philosophy mm -hmm. has been in crisis. Mm -hmm. And so there have been various responses to that crisis. Yeah, I mean, yeah. for me, from, from my, again, undergraduate level original training in philosophy, the idea that Kant didn't, that Kant, you seem to be equating Kant and Hegel here when you, when you speak of him this the way. The danger is reducing Kant to Plato, right? Noumena and phenomena. That's mm -hmm. not what Kant means. It's, it's just not. And also human skepticism is not, like these are the things that actually Kant is working beyond, right? In other words, he tends to be reduced back to a kind of ancient idealism or a kind of empiricism, again, antinomically. And it's like, well, then you're kind of throwing out all the work that Kant did. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, <laughs> it's like, well, you know, like, you know, I always deal with this with my students, especially when I teach Lukács and the thing in itself problem and the thing and the noumena and the phenomena. And it's like, well, uh, actually, this is, the, this is the dialectic, right? In other words, though, we're not stuck in this antinomy. Right before I, I uh, started this stream, I was editing a video. I was actually reposting a video I had edited a long time ago. I'd interviewed Zizek. Oh. We, um, we talked about uh, the critiques he was getting specifically from Noam Chomsky. Um, and I had noted that Chomsky has said many times that we just don't have a concept of the physical, that there is no concept of the physical left. And he, as a philosopher, he embraces something called Mysterianism or something like that, where the, the realm of the physical is just always going to be beyond. Zizek embraces this. No, no, Chomsky. Chomsky. Okay, yeah, Chomsky. Chomsky okay. embraces this, not Zizek, okay? Uh -huh, okay? And Zizek, as a Hegelian, uh, right, from the way I'm thinking right. about this, mm -hmm. says, okay, that realm of the mystery, that realm outside of human understanding that we are always going to be cut off from, is already included in our understanding. It is a right. category of our understanding. That's that's how I conceived of Zizek's answer to Chomsky, which I thought was not the same as Kant. I thought that was Hegelian. Oh. But in any case, it, does that clarify um, uh, a, a difference here between uh, the, the Zizekian Hegelian approach and... Maybe I, mean, I put it this way, Doug, mm -hmm. that it's rather than thinking how do we not know things? Mm -hmm. We should be thinking, how do we know things? Okay. Right? Not as a limit or an incapacity, but as a faculty and a capacity. Okay. All right. right? Because Adrian, can you, you I'm, I'm hoping Adrian, you're going to step in and, and, and take up my position, but I, 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 that's never happened to me in the past where I, when I hope that that will happen, it invariably what happens is both sides tell me I'm wrong, especially when it was DJ <laughs> and Jerry Pinker. So, so that's likely to happen here. Go <laughs> yeah. Go, just, do you have anything to, can you help me out? Well, I mean, you know, of course it was precisely Kant's notion of Dasting on Z. Uh, that ended up serving as a lightning rod for a whole series of controversies that became central structuring aspects of the development of post-Kantian idealism. And that, you know, in 1785, when uh, Jacobi triggered these, you know, pantheism slash Spinozism controversy, you know, through his anti-enlightenment polemics, um, in that context, when he addresses Kant, and of course, you know, takes Kant to be the leading contemporary representative of the enlightenment tendencies that Jacobi mm -hmm 
mm-hmm. is arguing against. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, Jacobi and, you know, of course, overall, Jacobi's way of uh, throwing down the gauntlet here and saying with Kant is the exemplar of a certain kind of secular enlightenment philosophizing as Jacobi understood it, um, that Jacobi wants to argue that either you are fully systematic as a philosopher, in which case Jacobi says you inevitably end up being a Spinozist, which Mm. for Jacobi means that you are a determinist, uh, hence a fatalist, and hence a nihilist, with Jacobi introducing the very idea of nihilism as a critical term of art in European philosophy that then becomes important for a figure like Heidegger, among others others later. Um, and he says, it's that. So you get, um, you know, the fatalism and nihilism of systematicity, or you accept that, you know, this newfangled philosophy is not as all cracked up to be. And uh, what you need to do instead is accept that, you know, that one has to take certain things on faith and that there are limits to reason, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, and so he basically says you can have, you can account for human freedom and everything that goes along with it, or you can have a system. It's one or the other. You have to choose. That's the antinomy. Um, well, that's for Jacobi, the fourth choice that he thinks he can impose on his audience using Kant um, and then deploys Yeah, no, I'm right. the third critique guy with Kant. And isn't it Jacobi who said Kant is wrong, but then about Hegel, he said Hegel's not even wrong? Well, it's, what I have in mind, though, uh, is rather That's what... That's important, uh, though. So. Yes, let's, let, let Adrian, let Adrian get it, to the end. Yeah, yeah go if, ahead. If you don't mind. Yeah. Um, so uh, that, that whole, you have to choose between freedom or system, well, you could see all of post-Kantian idealism as represented by the likes of Fichte, Schelling, and Hegel as all versions of the effort to refute that and to show that right. to be a false choice and to say, right. no, you can have a rigorous philosophical system that not only includes human freedom, but is in a way centered or grounded upon it yes, um, but what but what they all agree with Jacobi about is uh what Jacobi conveys in this uh you know very succinct formulation in 1785 where Jacobi says you know without Kant's thing in itself I can't enter into a system but with Kant's thing in itself I can't remain within it um and so the idea that you know Kant you know that the thing in itself was the crystallization of eternal inconsistencies within Kant's position that prevented Kantianism from being deemed fully systematic in a really internally coherent, rigorous fashion, and then prompted all of the post-Kantian idealists to try and overhaul things in light of their development of Jacobi's insight into the, the, you know, the contradictions that are condensed in the Kantian thing in itself. Um, and of course, Doug, yeah, you're, what you, you know, indicated in terms of Zizek's answer is very much in line with that style of post-Kantian idealist criticism of the Kantian thing in itself. Um, and the argument that, you know, any effort to draw this kind of limit that Kant seeks to draw in terms of the limits of imp- uh, possible experience, demarcating the boundary between, you know, uh, phenomenal objects as appearances and noumenal things in themselves, that the latter is inherently inaccessible, forever withdrawn, etc., that, of course, you know, Hegel's eminent critical work on the very, you know, categories that Kant's relying on, including concepts involving limit, et cetera, you know, is designed to show that you are never entitled to the kind of crude two-world metaphysics that right. is usually deployed in Kant's name, freedom. according to which you have this split. Right. Mm-hmm. No, I, I would just say, you know, I'll just full disclosure, I'm a student of Pippin, Robert Pippin. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, and I'll just say Zizek, I think on occasion says he's not really Hegelian. He's a follower of Schelling, which I think we have to pay attention to. 
Um, and so what Pippin does, Pippin's been accused of assimilating Hegel back to Kant. Um, but what Pippin does in his you know, scholarship is emphasize how Hegel's building upon the third critique, the critique of judgment, rather than staying in the ambit of the first critique. And Jacobi's, you know, criticism of Kant is, is a criticism of the first critique. And Kant had not finished out his philosophical system. So what we're talking about there is just the realm of epistemology, just the realm of the understanding. And that is not the full scope of reason or even of cognition, right? That practical reason and judgment are not included in the first critique. I mean, they're in their they're places relative to the first critique are indicated there, but they're not really fleshed out. And so, you know, we, we, we act and we act morally, we act socially, um, not simply on the basis of understanding, not simply on the basis of concepts or theories. There is practical reason that's not reducible to the understanding. And there's also judgment. There's aesthetic judgment. There's the imagination, which is a cognitive faculty. And he says is the cognitive faculty of freedom that is neither reducible to either our understanding or our practical reason. So practical reason is not reducible to understanding. And our judgment, our highest faculty, and the faculty of our freedom is not reducible to either theory or practice, either concepts, understanding, or practical reason. So that's, that part gets left out. And again, I've mentioned this with the neo-Kantians, what you get, and again, the Frankfurt School would understand this as a phenomenon of capitalism, the division between ethics and epistemology. I, I, I want to clarify what I think, and you guys tell me if I'm wrong here, but what is at stake in this, what is so far been, I think, uh, uh, as it goes along, more and more clear of a, a difference of opinion, but it's not entirely clear right yet where, where the difference lies. But that's normal because when people disagree, they, they constantly also fight over what the terms are of what they're disagreeing about. But um, and try to and, and and everyone wants to, you know. But what I see is at stake here is how do we avoid a kind of uh, what what uh, Lukash might call a kind of reification right. or um, uh, uh, a, a taking, wh where do we decide, what do we decide is human nature, transhistorical, et cetera. And what do we decide is historical and how, and then how do we do it? And like when I, Chris, when you were just describing um, your approach to Kantianism through the critique of uh, judgment, right. Mm -hmm. um, it, uh, Look, as someone who is not a scholar, not an academic, it sounded to me like my it vibed along with what I and how I understand Heidegger, which is like Heidegger uh, um, is someone who wants to be able to step outside of the antimonies that arise through reason, the difficulties that might uh, uh, arise when we try to systematize and, and have clear understanding and have some recourse to right. a realm of knowledge that. And from from my way of thinking, is mystified, and which cannot be, right? which which can't be, you know, you'll never resolve it. Uh, self consciousness of self consciousness of freedom. I mean, I would just say this about you know Kant and the transhistorical and the historical, okay? Mm -hmm. Which is all humans who have ever lived in culture, all humans for which we have any kind of record of their their lives, seem to have expressed 
cognition of the true, the good, and the beautiful. In other words, every every human community, all humans ever have had notions of truth, epistemological knowledge, certainty, uh, moral goodness, and also aesthetic beauty, you know, aesthetic feeling and aesthetic imagination that has been exhibited in all human cultures ever. And yet across history, you have wildly varying notions of all three of those things. So mm -hmm. the truth is remains true, even though it changes historically. Mm. The good remains like, in other words, once you, once you recognize history, that doesn't mean that you're in this relativistic realm in which there's no truth, there's no morality, and there's no, there's no aesthetic criteria of judgment. What it means is that these things are, you know, I guess invariant, but highly variable. In other words, like all human communities, all cultures have always ever had these values and yet how they define those values and, you know, even the substance of those values actually has changed radically and even reversed themselves entirely across history. Right. So we, we live in um, truths today that ancients would have regarded as not true. We live in morality that the ancients would have considered not morality. We, we appreciate aesthetic things at the level of feeling and intuitive judgment that they would not have appreciated, that they would not have valued. Right. And so, again, that's where because otherwise we might end up in a realm where Kant's a historical, Hegel's historical or do you know the standard accounts, which I think are just a problem? The stakes for me and how it relates back to the question of like... Yeah, I was just going to say, I want to hear from both of you what the stakes, the stakes are. stakes are bourgeois subjectivity. In other words, the reality of bourgeois subjectivity, the substance of bourgeois subjectivity, the substance of freedom. Uh, in other words, that uh, I'm concerned that, you know, certainly my education was deconstructing the bourgeois subject, right? In other words, showing its invalidity. Well, actually, what about its validity? What about its substance? What about, you know, because I really don't think we're going to do politically what we need to do if we junk bourgeois subjectivity. And okay. you know, I heard right. Adrian I want, earlier I, I want to, we yeah, don't want to throw out the transcendental categories. The way I understand that is we don't want to throw out the bourgeois subject. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to say, Adrian, don't, right? would you... We don't have anything you, else. <laughs> you know. see, I, I've always understood Zizek to be standing up in defense of some form of bourgeois norms. And I, mean, I didn't think of it that way in those terms when I first heard him, but he was always standing up for some sort of return to sense, I thought. Um, uh, uh, you know, it's, he was a critic of post-structuralism. Recognizing um, the substance, which is not the same thing as being normative, by the way. So, but Adrian, do you feel as though, like, to the extent that there's a, a conflict between someone like uh, Chris who wants to hold on to, like, realize in the sort of traditional Marxist way, realize the bourgeois sh subjectivity rather than abolish it, do you think that your understanding of Zizek and Lacan would be part of that project? Or where do you see the stakes in this conversation so far? Well, I mean, for me, just at the biggest picture level, um, it's not uh, about, well, it, 
a lot would hinge on what we understand right. as being involved in terms of the further actualization of the bourgeois subject. And if that is just a, a, a certain way of articulating the classical Marxist notion, you know, according to which one of the things that differentiates a Marxist conception of socialism and communism from, you know, similar but, you know, notably quite different uh, uh, orientations and agendas on the radical left, you know, both then and now, is that, uh, you know, for Marx, and this also differentiates, you know, Marx from someone like Heidegger, when you look at, for instance, how Marx and Heidegger approach technology and its relation to, uh, you know, particular, you know, socio-historical contexts, etc., you see some of this come out. But, um, you know, in classical Marxism already, there's the idea that um, socialism and communism will carry forward and further develop things which we can genuinely, not and not, you know, in an insincere or tongue-in-cheek fashion, but genuinely, sincerely, you know, thank capitalism for, um, you know, that there are a number of, you know, scientific, technological, and sociocultural developments associated with the history of capitalism that for Marx are, of course, themselves important precursor ingredients or conditions of possibility for the surpassing of capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so if it's, if it's something in that vein, well, I think we all agree at that broad level. Right. But then um, it, if we're going to talk about this in terms of, you know, thinking about the bourgeois subject, as I as I think of it, when we use this precise phrasing, really more as a certain, you know, model of the human agent that's very much bound up with certain forms of primarily, uh, you know, early modern British liberal individualism. Um, that, uh, you know, the, the kind of individualistic ethos, and that, of course, Hegel gets at when Hegel talks about the emergence of modern moralität as coming into a certain type of set of conflicts with, uh, you know, various versions of Zittlichkeit. Um, and, and that, you know, if we take that, you know, and both Hegel and Marx here, I think, would say, yeah, that the, the kind of, uh, uh, you know, bourgeois individualism that is really very part and parcel of how we are all subjectivized and how we all spontaneously think of ourselves in, in you know, our daily lives uh, under capitalism. That for me, I still do remain wedded to the project of deconstructing the bourgeois subject in the sense of this idea of the individual as, you know, say, you know, a, an agent, uh, you know, operating according to rational choice or, you know, other game theoretic, you know, style paradigms, you know, just simply confronting, you know, uh, you know, other agents and objects in marketplaces or marketplace-like right. settings and interacting with them in a transactional fashion, etc. I mean, at the root of this is really an ancient, you know, a conflict between, um, you know, partisans of this view, according to which, I mean, and here I would use Hobbes as almost the, the, the you know, the paradigm figure, right? Um, you know, the notion that primordially, we are first and foremost um, islands unto ourselves or, or you know, uh, self-enclosed windowless monads, if you want to use Leibnizian language to describe it. Um, that, uh, you know, and then, of course, you know, uh, Hobbes, uh, you know, using Plautus and saying man is a wolf to man, right? So mm -hmm. the lone wolf model that first we are these atomic individuals and then we only secondarily enter into um, social relations right. as, as an add-on, you know, through the myth of the transition, right. you know, to right. civilization via the social contract right. and right. exiting the supposed state of nature. So you have that model, and then you have the tradition that I think the, the biggest, you know, most important representatives of in Western philosophical history are Aristotle, um, Hegel, and Marx, you know, who all subscribe to Aristotle's zoon politikon model, right. according to which we are, you are political qua, you know, social 
cultural, et cetera, beings, we are inherently gregarious animals first, right? That is our first nature, right? And, you know, to me, um, a contemporary defense of the Zuan Politicon orientation against bourgeois individualism, um, that has enormous implications on on various levels, you know, including, I think, at a very practical, concrete political level. I am not a number. I am a person. Whoppers, two Whopper Juniors, and four Coca-Cola. And would I have to wait long if you made one Whopper with no pickle and no lettuce? No, sir. Hold the pickle, hold the lettuce. Special orders don't upset us. All we ask is that you let us serve it your way. Have it your way. Have it your way. Historically bourgeois thought, um, you know, Locke and Rousseau as opposed to Hobbes. I mean, Hobbes was a thinker of the counter-revolution, meaning he wants to say, you know, you need you need a sovereign, a strong sovereign to keep the peace among warring individuals. Locke and Rousseau say no, right? Mm-hmm. And I do think that Marx and Kant and Hegel are coming from Locke and Rousseau, not Hobbes. And so individuality versus individualism collectivity versus collectivism. In other words, not mm-hmm. the fact that we experience in capitalism this antinomy between individualism and collectivism, and that we've lost the dialectical interplay of the individual and the collective. That is a historical achievement of bourgeois society, right? Yeah. And we seem to be faced with a choice. Am I going to submit to the collective, or am I going to be like an anarchistic, libertarian, lone wolf individual those are reifications, and you know they exist. You know that reification, that split, that antinomy happened for real historical and social reasons. But nonetheless, it's a contradiction. It's a kind of the collectivism contradicts the true nature and potential of the collectivity, and individualism contradicts the true potential and substance of individuality. Right. So the individual as like produced by social history, nonetheless is real. And of course, politically, we can only appeal to individuals. We can only speak as individuals. We can only appeal to individuals. We can't like tell people submit to the collective. I mean, we, we know what happens with that. And original Marxism appealed to individuals, right? Lenin didn't say, abandon your individual thinking. He appealed to people's individual reason. <laughs> I saw an inter- I saw an interview with Cornelius Castriotis uh-huh. later later in his life, and he was someone who was a a, a Marxist, a kind of a post Trotskyist or something. He was he did yeah. uh, created a journal called Socialism or Barbarism. Uh, you know that was psychoanalytic. There was a he was uh, a Lacanian too. No, well, um, no, 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 no. Was? He he worked with Laplanche, who was a kind of was a student of Lacan, but he was not the social uh, imaginary. Yeah, is Lacanian. I don't know, but Laplanche certainly was, and that, and he was another editor at, uh, at on the socialism or barbarism. But the point is this: uh, Cornelius was saying, and this is after he's left Marxism behind. Right. He's saying, look, 
the kind of uh, autonomy that I want to see in society, the kind of people who want to be autonomous mm -hmm. are rare. They're historical. They came up for a little while and they've been smashed. That's been done. That's been killed off. And there, I don't know what, what use there is of it for autonomy anymore. He was de defeated, but he was saying, yeah, that's, you know, that's an abdication, of course. That's uh, you know, that but, is the defeat. And I, well, you know. right. But but look. But the point is, he was saying, individual, the individual, the autonomous individual, is an achievement. Yes. Of history, rather yes. than uh, a starting point. So rather than all of us being lone wolves fighting for ourselves, we are in a society which gives us the freedom. Yeah, gives us scope for the individual. That's what I mean, Cornelius thought. And he thought we had we'd lost that. And frankly, I think we've lost it. You know, well, we, <laughs> right now, certainly has been undermined by capitalism. Yeah, but yeah. we are still speaking for ourselves to each other. We yeah, are. Yeah, we're not just true. language machines. You know, we're not just mm -hmm. meme factories. We're not. I'm sorry. I'm not. Uh, right. Right. And that's not uh, an illusion. Uh, oh. That's not. Sorry, I have to. I have to recharge my battery. Just one moment. Go ahead, <laughs> uh, and hook, can hook my brain into. The no, but just. Go ahead, Adrian. Just a, just a brief aside. So Laplanche, by the time of the mid-1960s, had fallen out with Lacan. Um, mm. And so the Laplanche, who Castoriadis would have had a relationship with, already considered himself, in a way, a, 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 an ex-Lacanian dissident. Um, now, admittedly, there are aspects of Laplanche's work that remain indebted to Lacan, despite his sense of rupture with him. Um, and then Castoriadis, uh, you know, one has to bear in mind, he was affiliated not with, I mean, he was, uh, he was involved with the, what's called the fourth group, um, which was an analytic orientation that was formed by people who had deliberately left Lacan's Ecofoidien to set themselves up as another dissident group. You know, okay. and so with both of them, it's, it's really, you know, yes, they use okay. some Lacanian language, but let's be careful. Um, they neither of them considered themselves to be Lacanians, and in fact had a marked distaste, at least for aspects of Lacanianism, and particularly its institutional form. But I'll, I'll that I just wanted to, you know, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I will be, that. I'll be forthright about uh, the very crude way that I tend to think about these things, um, which is I think that uh, Freud is about strengthening the ego and you know helping people overcome their involuntary conflict with their with their conscious will and that uh lacan is saying that there's a futility to that in other words that that um and i think that if we embrace the futility of it then we basically might as well check out of politics and just okay, be, well, I, become pre-Socratic. No, re respond because this is. This is I, I don't. This is I mean, more. this is no. I mean, this is too broad. I just want to say I think that's dead wrong. Um, and it's just all I can say is go read Lacan. No, no, no. But let let Adrian go ahead. Adrian. No, uh, but of course, and with Freud himself, you know, uh, that the idea that he wants to strengthen the ego is based on a certain interpretation of this famous sentence from the 1933 New Introductory Lectures on Psychoanalysis, where in German Freud says, "Wo es war, soll ich werden." 
um, and that this gets worked up into English and French translations um, at the hands of, in France, Marie Bonaparte, and then, um, you know, uh, you know, Strachey and comp uh, company on the English side of things, um, that they've insist on wording it essentially as, you know, that, uh, you know, where it was, there must ego come to be, which is then interpreted as, all right, the ego needs to displace the id or strengthen itself and lord it over the id, etc. And bear in mind that Freud, when he, he uh, you know, the terms that are being mistranslated as, as, as id and ego there, right. when Freud uses... Right. What, yeah, when Freud uses them in the technical sense of, you know, two of the three agencies of his second topography, he always uses the definite article, right? Das S, das ich. But he doesn't in that sentence, right? So he's not, um, you know, indicating that these are the agencies of the topography, uh, you know, that's been put in place and starting in 1923 in the ego and the it. And so it's where, I, you know, where it was, there must I come to be, uh -huh. which is very different. That's about... You know, but the way I like to describe it to my students is, all right, a standard conception of psychoanalysis on the side of people who are potential or beginning analysons is that, okay, it's like I've got this, you know, my car is covered in bird shit. Um, and I really am tired of all the bird shit caked all over it. I'm going to drive it through a car wash at long last. And it's going to come out the other side looking all nice and clean. And they think of the analysis as basically the, the extended right. car wash. Right. And that my point is what analysis does is when you come out the other end of the car wash, you go from before, I want to get the bird shit off my car, to when you come out the other side, you go, my God, I just realized my car is made of bird shit. Without the bird shit, there'd be no car. I couldn't go anywhere, <laughs> right? I wouldn't be able to drive, right? And the idea of being able to turn things that you want to hold at arm's length, you know, whether through repression or other mechanisms um, that you disidentify with and want to attribute to, well, that's just this, you know, external contingency. It belongs to this it. I don't identify with it. There's my I here. There's the it there. And, you know, where it was, there must I come to be. There I have to recognize that, that I have me. to... Yes, and, and that there are transformative effects that can arise from that. And I think that that's what someone like Lacan is after. I mean, he even says at the end of you know, the famous version of the Mirror Stage, the 1949 Eclipse of that title, you know, says, you know, basically, you know, that we lead the patient to the part of the thou art that, which tu es cela. And it means both, you know, there's, there's that accretion of things that you now have to realize you have identified with and make up part of your being. But also, you gain a certain distance once you can identify it. And hence, the homophony in, Fran in French with tu es la also could be heard as kill that, right? Or, you know, basically, you know, you, you actually do achieve a certain a certain relief through distantiation through that mm -hmm. very gesture of identification and that i mean just in a nutshell is what and and of course lacan i think rightly points out if, Freud, if what freud was saying is that you want to strengthen the ego to tame the unruly id then there's nothing really revolutionary in freud's thinking this is just very much in line with a well-worn you know this you know almost cliche narrative you know which goes back to the ancient greeks I and mean, you find plato talking these ways etc and if freud really is uh, in certain ways, a remarkably unprecedented figure. This is part of it: is that he doesn't subscribe, I think, to that sort I would, of. I would uh, put image. the strengthening of the ego as the strengthening of the reality principle, and that means having a realistic view of oneself as well, right? In other words, it's not about the like victory of the ego over the id; it's rather overcoming the conflict between ego and id that had manifested in the neurosis. Meaning, you know, it's not about doing away with rep repression or fully repressing. It's neither like getting rid of repression 
nor is it the full victory of repression. It's rather that repression is sublimation. In other words, that 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 you know you can recognize yourself and you know sort of be yourself, right? That, that it's not about like one or the other. And my fear, you know, because I, I I would also say that I'm always interested in saving the original thinker from the followers. So I am interested in saving Lacan from the Lacanians to a certain extent. And Lacanians, not in the sense of professional Lacanians, but in the sense of pop Lacanianism, the Lacanianism that I live and breathe in academia. And that tends to be about, um, you know, that your ego is an illusion, you know, kill the ego. It's about ego death, as my students put it. Well, what about ego death? And I'm like, uh, no one's interested in that, children. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That for Lacan, it's more, I think, closer to when, you know, a doctor has to re-break a bone to get it to set right. Um, and that for Lacan, I think there is having to pass through this moment of ego death. I mean, he even, you know, I mean, he himself says in places such as, and here's where you have, I mean, Lacan was Heideggerian in some ways in the 1950s, but he has a falling out with him. And I think he really becomes genuinely wholeheartedly vehemently opposed to Heidegger at a very fundamental level, really in terms of ontology itself by the 1970s, where he starts in seminars from the early 70s, making very pointed criticisms directed at Heidegger's notion of fundamental ontology and ontological difference without name, naming Heidegger as such, or it's clear who it is. Right. But anyhow, um, at an earlier Lacan in the seventh seminar, uh, you know, in, in a more Heideggerian moment, I mean, he does talk about this need to pass through aspects of what is involved in Heidegger's description of being towards death as an element of a, the, a, the terminal phase of an analytic process. And, uh, you know, and this, of course, you know, is that sense of, all right, in terms of my identity, you know, Heidegger's insistence on, on the inescapable almost quality of one's own mortal finitude, a la being towards death. Um, you know, there it's like, okay, this is, yes, this is most you, but not in the ego level sense of here's my stable self and this representation that I have that I and others, you know, can relate to as, a, you know, an imaginary symbolic construction, etc. You know, but rather that singularity of, uh, you know, there is no cure for mortality. I mean, the analyst right. can't pull that out of his back pocket. Right. So, you know, you really have to, and, and dealing with everything that that brings with it and going through this experience of a kind of ego death at the end of analysis. But for Lacan, the end of analysis is not the end full stop, right? No. Because he even says in the mirror stage essay too, at the end, it, you know, it's not in our, you know, beyond the thou art that slash kill that. He says what happens on the other side of that um, that is going to be left up to the analysand, and they, right. they have to be allowed to live on the other side of that. Right. And Lacan clearly thinks that, yeah, and, you know, right. egos and other things will reconstitute themselves right. on the other side of that. But in, in the, you know, having broken the old ego in a certain way, it is able to re, you know, to reconfigure itself differently after passing through that ordeal of the termination of analysis, as Lacan describes it. And then also with the reality principle issue. Well, we're going back to Freud, right? Now, I think Freud, um, it toward in, in, in the last years of his life, I think there was an unfortunate influence on his thinking coming from his daughter, Anna Freud. And that, you know, she publishes in 1933, um, you know, what really is kind of the foundational text for the entire ego psychology movement um, that then, of course, becomes Lacan's main opponent within the international psychoanalytic mm. community. And, you know, it's in time, of course, the ego and the mechanisms of defense with right. Lacan's rebuttal essentially being, no, the ego is the mechanisms of sure, defense. Of course, right. It's not distinguishable from them. Right. But um, 
but Freud, I think too, I mean, he, you know, his, you know, as the founder of analytic technique, including its very hands-off sort of approach, mm. I don't think he saw himself as in the business of, at least before his thinking became at least a little contaminated by the original impetuses behind ego psychology, which I think that idea of analysis is, as forcing you to adjust to basically a socially defined oh, right, right, principle. Right. That's, that's, you know, I don't think that's either Freud no, or well, Lacan, but that is certainly Hartman, Chris, and Lowenstein. There's reality principle and there's reality principle, meaning I, I, I agree that Freud is not about adjusting people to uh, a social norms or something, but we still have to live in society. In other words, we still have to be able to negotiate it. And I, 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 I'm just saying that people take people run with Lacan and the way they interpret ego death is some kind of like fundamental psychosis or something. And it's like, no, we're not talking about that, other than in the ordinary sense that, of course, there's a sort of dissociative aspect to psychology, you know, that's just there. But, you know, we're not saying, you know, the cure to the bourgeois subject is psychosis. No. And Lacan is not Deleuze yeah. and Guattari. That's just basically that, yes. Lacan with Deleuze and Guattari. Thank and you. Not. Yeah, yeah, Thank right. you. That is, that is may, may, maybe my most basic crudest point. Right. And I agree and, with that. I mean, that's not Lacan for me either at all. You right. Know, that right. is. Right. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. And and I think it's worth pointing out that when Zizek wrote in 1989, the was it the tickler subject that was the sublime object? Sublime object was 99. Sublime object was 99. Yeah. OK. Yeah. So, so it was the uh, sublime object of ideology. But that book, if I remember correctly, arrived on the scene as just a, a wrecking ball. To post-structuralism it was just uh, uh and it was i think received by those who call themselves post-structuralists and who would side with Deleuze. uh it was conceived of and received as a conservative yeah kind of attack but i mean but in fact it was simply a trying a, an attempt to return to some kind of subjectivity where we would have a chance to re to stand up to the society as it was and, and so that's how i see zizek as a, well, an ally in that. Go ahead. Yeah, and along these lines, it, and this allows me to also link back to some of what we were talking about in connection with, like, Doug, I think a little while ago you asked about, you know, the later uh, uh, phases of the Frankfurt School, like second and third generation Frankfurt School, mm -hmm. over and above, our, you know, both Chris and I tending to have targeted our remarks about the Frankfurt School to its first generation. Mm -hmm. um, and another thing to appreciate about, you know, Zizek, especially in terms of his early texts like Sublime Object, um, is that he was also very much involved in not only, I think, pushing back against post-structuralism, but also against second and third generation Frankfurt School. Um, and, you know, of course, uh, part of what the Sublime Object did, I think, is to um, you know, reactualize as contemporarily crucial um, Marxist ideology critique of a sort mm -hmm. that you know it was viewed as really passe and you know uh, you know historically moribund mm -hmm. um, by not just some post-structuralists but some very much associated with later phases of the Frankfurt School. And you know what I think Zizek's work helped bring out in part is that you know the really you know. For me, figures like Habermas and Hanek are no longer Marxist. I right, mean, what right. they really are doing is they are essentially, you know, center left partisans of bourgeois modernity 
um, who are you know, relying on the, the faint whiff of radicalism from the you know, lingering fumes from the earlier you know, pioneering days of the Frankfurt School. And that mm -hmm. to me, they just essentially trot out you know, um, you know, what could come from the British Labour Party or, or, you know, sections of the America's Democratic National Committee, um, just these, these center-left bourgeois bromides dressed up in technical terminology. I, I don't mean to be harsh, but I just think, and, and to understand that in a way that isn't just dismissive, is that one has to realize, okay, the second and third generation of the Frankfurt School were very, I mean, their work makes sense when what you are thinking about are issues having to do with um, the aftermath of really existing socialism, the reunification of Germany, um, you know, and, you know, how to negotiate that situation in the late 20th century. And if, if that is your overriding concern, they make much more sense, but that, you know, we can see them then as really, um, too bound to that context to be really useful at a larger level. And I think that Zizek also was very effective as a critic of them beginning in his early work. And then it, of course, you know, earned him charges of, you know, left fascism, et cetera. You know, and this is, of course, part of what's involved, too, in his insistence on not just a return to the likes of, you know, Hegel, Marx, and Lacan, but also to Lenin, right? And yeah you know, all of what's involved there. And that, of course, brings them into debates, too, with the post-Marxist strands of stru uh, structuralism and post-structuralism as well, including figures like Castoriadis, uh, uh, um, Laclau, Mouffe, etc. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if I could say something about, um, I guess, you know, again, the, the, the historical argument, right, and the issue of ideology critique. Right, because I, th I think that my own interest in the Frankfurt School is very much about ideology critique in this sense. Um, in other words, that we work through manifest phenomena of ideology rather than, um, you know, the, the Hegel phrase, the substance or the essence must appear, right? Everything takes a form of appearance, that it's not like you're getting at an underlying essence and despite the appearance, but the appearance itself has a substance. And the appearance of things has the substance of freedom, meaning it, it presents itself as like a task, the way the world appears to us. So ideology critique in that dialectical sense of dealing with the way things actually appear to us, that's very vital to the way I understand Marxism. And what that allows for is recognizing the bourgeois ideological basis of socialism, but dealing with that in a dialectical way, meaning that the working class is either going to achieve socialism or not achieve socialism based on claiming their bourgeois rights, the bourgeois right of labor, right? And that's both individual and collective in character. That again, it's it's that this this is the way we're going to work through this, even though capitalism has undermined it and in some ways surpassed it, but again, surpassed it in a way that seems only deleterious you know, that seems like the advance of the inhuman rather than, you know, the fulfillment of a kind of bourgeois humanistic project. And again, this is why we get in Marxism, a kind of anti-humanist versus humanist like debate within Marxism, that this is all explicable when we think about it at the level of ideology and that Marxism is not free of that. It's not like, okay, we found the method to be free of ideology, but rather how are we going to work in and through ideology? Yeah, right. yeah. And there's a there's a beautiful illustration of this in terms of Marx's relationship to Darwin.
And that, you know, of course, as we all know, Marx wanted to dedicate volume one of Capital <laughs> to Darwin. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, when my students hear details with this, it's often I find they get alarmed initially because when they think about Darwin in connection with anything having to do with politics, they think about the awfulness of things like social Darwinism, et cetera, right? Um, and then having to explain to them, okay, what was it that, you know, really drew Marx and along with him Engels to Darwin um, and where were their differences, et cetera. And one thing in terms of Marx's stance vis-a-vis -vis Darwin that I think nicely brings out what Chris was saying about you have to work in and through theology is that, you know, Marx, on the one hand, would say that, well, Darwin's vision of, of evolution as involving nature, red and tooth and claw, etc., is a projection onto the pre- and non-human world of, you know, social relations characteristic of, you know, early industrial Dickensian England. Yep. But at the same time, instead of that ideological projection blocking Darwin from being able to formulate a new science in the guise of, of evolutionary biology, it actually weirdly facilitates him uh, hitting certain nails on the head. Right. And and so this, you know, in terms of, you know, say, like, you know, a standard ideology science distinction. And right, you know, right. even though we often associate this with Althusser, he's much more subtle in his own handling of it. Um, we could say that, yeah, I mean, Marx himself, especially, I think, through his 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 appropriately dialectically ambivalent attitude towards Darwin, you yeah. know, basically conceives as much in that case and says it's precisely thanks to projecting um, Dickensian England social relations onto nature that we actually made some real discoveries about how nature works, weirdly enough. Mm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Now, I did a deep dive into Auguste Comte last summer. And um, I've taught like one little piece by Comte in the, like a grad methodologies course. Um, and I was always struck by the way he, Comte connects politics and science. And again, the idea, and then when I did the deep dive where Comte has this idea that um, a, like complex social relations allows for a more complex view of nature Right. And um, in other words, it's not the positivism that we know from the 20th century, but rather that, you know, that, yes, our knowledge is bound to our social relations. But again, that actually enables it doesn't only blind. Right. And that right. Yeah. A, critical yeah. attitude, a critical attitude towards that. In other words, understanding that the social relations are not only simply what exist, but also what we might be tasked to overcome. Mm -hmm. Right. And, yeah. so, and the substance. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, this is all, of course, uh, in line with what Marx is getting at when speaking of the history of economic thinking. He famously declares in the introduction to the Glendrissa manuscripts, uh, you know, the anatomy of man is the key to the anatomy of the ape. Right. Exactly. And it's that, yes, there's this benefit of hindsight, you know, good old Hegelian, out of Minerva style, uh, you know, retroactive. Mm -hmm. uh, discernment of what mm -hmm. was there but could not come to light as such uh, uh, unless and until we've reached a certain subsequent level of you know social complexity to permit that retroactive benefit of hindsight discernment. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, I'm hearing um, uh, more agreement here. It's always so frustrating when I get people together to, to fight and they end up agreeing. Uh, no, it's good. Uh, then, then maybe... Uh, I we I anticipated. I do want to ask one last question, and then maybe we can wrap it up. But this, this the, the um, distinction between the anti-humanist line and the humanist line. Um, I mean, I, I I know that Lacan 
and and Zizek tends to be classified as anti-humanist. But I just wonder what does that mean, mm, right. and and what what humanism are we anti, or what humanism are are we trying to champion? Um, uh, and it sounds like for, if if I'm remembering the conversation up to now uh, correctly, it sounds like the categorizing just what it is to be human is what sort of not only is being contested in, de in philosophical debate, but what we're trying to politically decide. So um, anyway, so uh, Adrian, what, how do you see anti-humanism? Well, I mean, here I would want to distinguish between what I think humanism actually is versus how it's referred to in the, especially in the 20th century, primarily French humanism versus anti-humanism debates. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, the, the very founding text of Renaissance humanism is Pico della Mirandola's 1486 oration, you know, Ode to the Dignity of Man. And what's, what's curious about this, this text is that, um, you know, in terms of uh, humanism, uh, you know, is involving this idea of a human nature that then, you know, you know, one in a sense kind of codifies and, and you know, presents philosophically or theoretically. But um, with Pico right. della Mirandola, it's the narrative according to which, well, the peculiar thing about us is that, yes, we have a nature, but it's a nature, it's a nature devoid of any substance that really what we, you know, and of course, uh, Pico della Mirandola sees this as a divine gift that, you know, <laughs> our benevolent creator bestowed upon us nothing gave you know all non-human animals plenty by way of hardwired instincts um you know natural means of attack and defense etc um but we humans and of course there's a version of this in the creation myth in plato's protagoras dialogue already but mirandola really puts this forward and then the idea is, is that um what is distinctive about human nature is that we are naturally inclined to the predominance of nurture over nature as it were right uh -huh. and so this kind of like spontaneous dialectical sensibility i think is really sure. built into the foundations of classical humanism if we indeed in line with, I think, consensus, treat um, 1486's uh, Ode to the Dignity of Man as the founding text. And what's curious is, is that by the time we get to 20th century debates about humanism, um, you know, it just seems to be as, all right, you have some positive, substantialist account of human nature, blah, blah, blah. Um, but uh, And that certainly is antithetical to precisely what, you know, yes. their, the origins of humanism. The other point, though, is, is that we have to remember the debates within 20th century Marxist circles and, and their fellow travelers about humanism very much were bound up with, again, Stalinism and with, you know, the manner in which people started to turn to especially the young Marx, and particularly the author of the 1844 Paris Economic and Philosophical Manuscripts, as, you know, Marx prior to what seemed like, and especially thanks to Stalin's uh, appropriation of right. it, the cold, inhuman, you know, deterministic machinery of scientific. the Marxist, yeah, scientific, scientific socialist critique of political economy, um, and that you can find a warmer, fuzzier, more compatible with things like phenomenology, existentialism, et cetera, Marx in the pre-1845 writings. Right. Um, and I think in this context, even though there are problems with how Althusser intervenes, it's very understandable, I yeah. think, why he felt compelled to say, for any number of reasons, if this is a very problem way of relating to Marx and Marxism that also has, you know, in Althusser's view, and I think rightly, not only problematic intellectual consequences, but is also going to be politically uh, uh, disastrous and is just going to lead to, you know, this kind of tepid capitulationist reformism, you mm -hmm. know, and essentially what was derided, you know, in the Marxist tradition as mere legal Marxism, etc. You know, essentially co-option by parliamentary politics and business as usual. Mm. Right. So, Again, bourgeois humanism, 
having become reified in capitalism and reified in capitalism in such a way as to generate discontents with it that in fact tend in this kind of you know anti-humanist uh direction and you know i would you know not to demonize poor heidegger but heidegger is the source of this kind of anti-humanism um for a lot of 20th century thought but there are parallel developments like structuralism mm. um and so there's a kind of confluence if you will that i would simply say is you know a, a symptom of the crisis of bourgeois subjectivity that we seem to have a kind of hollowed out version of the bourgeois subject that humanism seems to be a kind of just so story you know that even freedom is reified in this respect and so but but of course the actual gutting of the the true spirit of bourgeois humanism itself must be explained it's not just like a kind of misunderstanding or a mistake you know it is a kind of manifest apparent reality um it seems that capitalism does demand that we abandon our humanism right that we you know and um and so how do we make sense of that also how do we how do we treat that as not just a sort of dead end right as a kind of baleful dead end how do we not just mourn the death of the bourgeois subject and rather see it as well this is this is the way the task of historical transformation is presenting itself to us mm -hmm. it's presenting us with this contradiction of Bourgeois humanism seemingly becoming a just so story and a reification of even freedom itself versus embracing the inhumanity of capital and its demands, right? And that it's, you know, neither and both to be dialectical about it, right? That, that working, struggling for socialism is going to seem to be the restoration of bourgeois humanism and the advancing of inhumanity. It's going to seem to be the fulfillment of capitalism's negation of the bourgeois subject, as well as the fulfillment of the the potentiality and promise of the bourgeois subject. It's going to appear. Well, I wish I knew what that meant, Chris. I, well, I no, feel like. Let me yeah. take a stab at answering you right now, Doug, on Chris's behalf. You okay. know, one thing that is uh, is really interesting to do is, um, you know, I have with a number of graduate students working on Marx, uh, done close guided readings with them through, you know, some of Marx's key sources, including things like Smith's Wealth of Nations yeah. and Ricardo's Principles of Political Economy and Taxation. And for instance, when reading Smith, um, it's always for them very eye-opening because what you actually realize is, is that many of Smith's you know, harsh critiques of, of, of mercantile uh, economics, um, you realize are remarkably pressing critiques of the for, you know, what have been more recent developments in really existing capitalism. Mm -hmm. And that Smith actually has all of these pointed criticisms of things that we now very much associate with capitalism and it's most, most ruthless and rapacious from an author who is usually like held up as right. oh, here's one of the great intellectual godfathers of pro-capitalist right. no. ideology. Right. No, right? I mean, right. you go back and read him, and you know he's saying things that you would expect to find from the pen of someone like Marx. Right. Um, and of course, with this idea that he has of, well, you know, the, you know, the laissez-faire alternative here would be different than the mer uh, mercantile one. Yes. But of course, that kind of laissez-faire capitalism really never existed. Right. And moreover, you know, we've gone a far distance from right. the 
heyday of like, you know, early industrial local market competition to what we have now in monopoly and post-monopoly capitalism. Um, but, uh, or not really post, but just rather it's continuation that led some people to say, oh, we're now in neo-feudalism. Right, it's monopoly yeah. capitalism, that's right. Yeah, anyhow. Yeah, we've been talking about neo-feudalism for a month, and I, I keep saying basically that. It's monopoly capitalism, it's monopoly capitalism. Yeah. Let me tell you why I reacted the way I did to what Chris is, Chris said because when he, when he talks about bourgeois rights there's one right that I have in mind right now because I'm on some sort of obsessive tear mm -hmm. which is the right to free speech because mm -hmm. we I just discovered in the last month or so just how deeply the state and not just the United States but really around the world the security states around the world have uh, embedded themselves into media not just social media not just online but all across the, the corporate media and um and that this i've also discovered by reading reports from matt taibbi and then reading uh documents from ngos and you know sure. government websites um that that the the uh that this is a couch is a war on disinformation and the aim is to do go further the aim is to in, embed this, the security state into uh, the, all the media apparatus around the world even further. That means, and it, what's weird is like, it's not about West versus East. It's happening in the East. It's happening in the West. Um, it's happening all, it seems to be happening everywhere where there's enough development for there to be a media apparatus this is going on. So like, and I think, okay, well, we have to stand up. You know what I was watching, rights. I was watching a house yeah. committee hearing where it was a clip from Forbes and it was Marjorie Taylor Greene responding mm. to um, uh, Donald Payne, I think his name is. He's, a, mm. he's a, a congressional representative. And they were talking about, they were basically doing some oversight legislation on the Department of Homeland Security and on the Border Patrol. Mm -hmm. And it was about like some people in or around the Border Patrol had generated a, um, a kind of an emblem celebrating the whipping of the Haitians by the horsebacked border patrol agents. Right. And, and, you know, and who knows where it came from and who knows whether it was actually border patrol agents. It was something that some Democrats staffer had found on the internet. And then there was like a sequence of Democrat representatives saying, we want to know what's going on in the psyche of the people who made this. And Marjorie Taylor Greene just said, freedom of speech means freedom to be offensive freedom to be wrong. Like, and she's like, you know, I don't approve of this, but I'm going to say people have a right to make these things. Because right. what's the alternative to have the, the alternative is the, psycho the psychological defense agency of Sweden, which is yeah. formed in 2022 uh, against <laughs> disinformation. Okay. That's the, anyway, right? go ahead, Adrian. But I thought that they said psyche <laughs> and I just thought, damn, like, really, I know they really want this. Orwellian. Yeah. yeah. And I think right now it is true that simply holding the line on, you know, established what we thought were, were you know, accepted bourgeois norms, principles, laws, rights, etc., is is itself a fight and a fight against you know much darker forces at this point um but i think it's also a sign of how dire our circumstances are that we can't even contemplate anything more radical than you know it's already a stretch just to prevent the erosion 
right. of you know rights, et cetera, that were enshrined only you know over the course of the past two centuries and are quickly being unraveled. Um, and you know any kind of you know agenda for like a more ambitious revolutionary program, you know right. obviously just seems utopian in the in the worst you know hopelessly unrealistic sense. Uh, it's uh, worse but, than that. Like people who want that utopian program to be enacted yeah. will not accept that they need to fight for this right. That's right. And that's what I'm saying is, yeah, making yeah. the perfect the enemy of the not horrible uh, right. is, is the wrong move at this point, I <laughs> right. think, given, you right. know, like a good Gramscian, like, you know, conjunctural analysis of our of, of our landscape mm -hmm. and of the ideological, you know, trench warfare we're enmeshed in is such that, mm -hmm. yeah, that's uh, our near term struggle just to hold the line on the outer ring of basic minimal bourgeois rights is already fierce enough. Um, yes, that's not, <laughs> right. that shouldn't be our stopping point, but my God, um, we're yeah. at least, you know, the, have to fear do that. I think, the fear, I think, again, why the bourgeois norms would appear not to apply. I think that it was Jimmy Kimmel who said, mm -hmm. like a couple of weeks ago, who said, it's precisely the people who don't want the government to tell them what to do, who need to be told what to do by the government. And I just thought, okay. That's always the case. I mean, that right? is always what the, what, if the state doesn't need to tell you what to do, then it doesn't. Right. <laughs> right? But, if you're not but, causing you know, trouble, then but they I don't just give thought, you trouble. You know, I just thought, okay, we've come to this place where I think that there's a distrust that, that freedom, freedom now is like a right wing concept, according to, you know, the Democratic Party. And that basically it's like, if you, if you want your freedom, you must be up to no good. Yeah, I remember in 2002 yeah. when when I was a, very uh, adamantly opposed to the Patriot Act, and I would tell people, "Look, they're 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 surveilling what books you read. They're keeping a profile on your thoughts, and and they're they're probably going to read your emails. They're surveilling us all." And that was 2002. And I had friends who were not political, not leftists, but friends who were just regular that's people would say, be. I'm not doing anything that they should care about, right? That's where okay. I would be, you know, an enemy of the Frankfurt School, I'd be like down with Karl Popper, mm. the open society, right? Like his whole conception, which, you know, is a kind of distressed liberalism from the 20th century. But I think these socialists really shouldn't disagree with this, which mm. is that the open society is a dangerous society, meaning that, you know, it's like the classic, like again like freedom from and freedom to positive and negative liberty like it's like you know trading security for you know freedom and you get neither mm -hmm. right and so just the idea that popper had that to do science you need an open society which means a society of danger and risk rather than a society of security that a society of security is the enemy of science and that's mm -hmm. true like in other words very straightforward. Yeah. You, don't you can see that right now with COVID. Yeah. Right. You can see that directly with the vaccines <laughs> and with COVID and all of it. Go ahead, Adrian. Yeah, but it, it depends on what we mean by danger and risk. And if it's sure. you know, the capitalist version of, you know, 90 plus percent of humanity is basically right. going to be Precarious. on the short end of the socioeconomic economic. Uh, 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 stick. Uh, then, no, no, no. Yeah, right. no, no, no. Right. Certainly not that. But I think, you know, also, of course, there are Marxist versions of this. I mean, uh, you know, one could just simply trot out mouths, let a hundred, uh, let a hundred flowers bloom, let a hundred schools of thought contend. Now, of course, you might say, well, in practice, the manner in which these sorts of discussion groups went under Maoism wasn't exactly what we have in mind right. by an mm -hmm. open, you know, d debating forum. But still, I mean, there is this, you know, and, you know, one has to, of course, also recognize that there was a lot of 
experimentation along these lines too, um, and, and a real openness in the you know during the Leninist phase you know, in Russia that you yeah. know and of course like working on things like Freudian Marxism. I mean you know right. uh, you had figures like Luria and Vygotsky doing very interesting work in terms of Freud in relation to historical materialism that then all you know ground to a halt once Stalinism uh, you know was in, was in place. But um, but that there you know it certainly seems as though you have examples from the history of even just really existing socialism where there is this this understanding that yeah that that kind of intellectual openness um you know is is crucial um and yeah uh and if if it if it originates with certain bourgeois values yes well this is just part of how marxism involves the idea of those some of those as ingredients for the further development beyond capitalism itself Right. It's made a mockery of like bourgeois freedom is made a mockery of in capitalism. And certainly someone like Hopper did not want neoliberalism, even if he was associated with the order of liberals, because at a certain level, they took socialism for granted. I think that they couldn't imagine that we would arrive where we are now, actually. You know? Yeah, I think that's right. I'm having a hard time imagining it. And even while it's happening right in front of me, listen, Thank you both for for coming on. Um, I'll let you both know when this is going up. It'll probably be next week sometime. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna end the recording. Um, but uh, again, thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both.